Hello, hello, hello. There we are. Hello to all of you here and those of you over in uh, Stevens Point. I guess Appleton's off tonight. Those slackers. What happened there? Who knows? Anyway, as Pastor Lathan just pointed out, our last uh, Wednesday night of the summer, and then, uh, well, not the last Wednesday night, that's broken up like this. We have a couple of family nights, three of them, I guess, coming up throughout the summer, but we're ending our study of the uh, Old Testament, and we're going to wrap it up tonight looking at the last chapter of the book of Nehemiah, and uh, this has been no small task going through the Old Testament. We didn't hit every single phrase or verse of the Old Testament. It would have been, (laughs) we'd still be in Leviticus. (laughs) I mean, there's parts of it that are just, oh my goodness. Uh, but trying to just give a context of what happened. The, the Old Testament is so important to us because it gives us the uh, historical perspective and the spiritual perspective of why are we here. It starts out in Genesis and, uh, you know, how God made the heavens and the earth. A lot of people fight over that, but it's just a few chapters. I mean, that's not their focus. Their focus is what happens. How did we get here? It talks about how God comes to a man named Abraham, and then Isaac and Jacob, and eventually Joseph ends up in Egypt, where the Israelites flourish and then are turned into slaves for 400 years. And then God raises up Moses, a very imperfect servant who messed up (laughs) more than once, Uh, but God uses him to set the people free. They're supposed to go right into the promised land, they were stubborn people who kept messing up and it took 40 years to make a you know, 10-day journey because they kept getting in trouble with God. And God finally had it up to here with them and said, listen, we're just going to have you wander around out there until all of you guys die off and your kids will take over. And that's exactly what happened. They go into the promised land and uh, they conquer everything. They do actually very well, not perfectly, but very well as they're establishing the land. And God wants to be their God and their people. He wanted really a nation of people that were not ruled by a king. They wanted it to be unusual in that sense that this would be a nation without a king. I mean, who has that, you know, especially back then. And, uh, but it didn't take long before the Israelites started whining and complaining, we want a king, everybody else has a king, how come we don't have a king? Sounds like your kids, you know. Bobby has a king. How come we don't have a king? So they whined and whined and whined and whined. And God says, you don't want a king. They'll take advantage of you. They'll just, can't imagine a politician doing that. But they took advantage and they warned them and they wouldn't listen. So God finally says, all right, I'll give you a king. So Saul is their first king. And then along comes David. Saul messes up and David comes and on and on it goes uh, the first, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight books of the Old Testament are actually in chronological order. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve are pretty much in chronological order. From there on out, it's kind of jumping back and forth and all over the place. Really difficult to comprehend. I don't know who decided on the order of these books, but one of the reasons why the Old Testament is so difficult to understand is if you sit there and just read from one book to the other, it won't make any sense because it's like just chunks just shoved all over the place. And, uh, and we've tried to unscramble that 
the best that we could. And I'm sure when we come around again this in another few years, we'll give it another shot and hopefully be a little clearer. It took a little bit longer, obviously, because we knocked off doing Wednesday night Bible studies for how long did we not do that? At least a couple of years, you know, whatever. So we came back to it. So anyway, we're wrapping it up. The Old Testament, the New Testament will be a lot less complicated because it's really our focus. That's what we are. We're not really here. I never try to make an argument or defense of the Old Testament. People can say, well, how come the Old Testament God said to do this and that? I said, I don't know. Go ask a rabbi, you know, because <laughs> it's not my job to defend that. Our defense and understanding really is supposed to be the New Testament. And just to give you a perspective, the entire New Testament takes place in the span of less than 100 years, actually more like 70 years. Every one of those books in your New Testament, from Matthew down to Revelations, all happen like boom. To give you a perspective, uh, the book of Daniel covers a longer span of time than the entire New Testament. So we're talking thousands of years of history that are spread all out, and of course the culture changes. I was like, wow, it was very complicated to understand. Once we get to, to the New Testament, and I think what we'll do when we get to the New Testament, where I want to go through, we, I, I went through the book of Acts some years ago, three, four, five years ago, and I thought, you know, I want to do it again, or this time, I want to do it chronologically. In other words, when we get to right in the book of Acts when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, then we'll go and read Thessalonians. And they'll come and pick up the story when he wrote to the Corinthians. We're going to go read what he said to the Corinthians. Put it all in. So that, that'll keep us busy <laughs> for a week or two. All right. So, uh, and then, and then uh, if I have the courage, I'll actually tackle the book of Revelation when we get to the end. Uh, no professing that I know what I'm talking about. But uh, so anyway, so we're finally now to the end of the, uh, all of this, they have the kings. The kings are really bad people. They disobey God constantly. God can't take it anymore. And if you think God's impatient with you, man, just read this. It took him hundreds and hundreds of years. He put up with their nonsense and would keep cutting them slack, keep cutting them slack. And then finally, he couldn't take it anymore. So you make mistakes, relax. God's pretty patient, to say the least. Finally, he warns them they wouldn't change. He brings in uh, these conquering armies basically wipes out almost everybody. Just a small percentage of their nation is left. They go off into Babylonian captivity. Seventy years later, they go back to build Jerusalem, which is a mess. It's just totally destroyed. And why is this important? Because the Messiah is coming. The Jesus that we read about in the New Testament and the temple and all the stuff, that all, all that did not exist, you know, 500 years before Jesus was born. It was destroyed. Everything totally destroyed. So God starts using these people that we've been reading over this last, you know, Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah and, you know, Zechariah and all these prophets, Daniel included all in that. Uh, all these books of the Bible just all kind of squished on this one. This is like a big deal at this point, biblically, where they're all coming back to rebuild Jerusalem. And then the Bible basically historically goes quiet for about 500 years. And then here comes Jesus. And wow, everything starts to, to move dramatically. So um, we are now uh, to the 13th chapter of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, uh, Ezra was the priest of the time. Nehemiah was kind of the, uh, the butt kicker. And uh, he was very strict. And he was the administrator. And he was making sure things got done. And when everybody was threatening the nations around him, you know, uh, Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and all these people, all the Ammonites were all threatening. He wouldn't stop. And in a very small period of time, because they worked day and night, they wouldn't stop. This guy was 
a taskmaster. I don't think anybody would have liked working with him. He was brutal. And they had, they had a, you know, their shovel in one hand and their axe and their hammer in the other hand, in one hand, and then their sword in the other. I mean, they were, they were literally constantly on guard. And Israel to this day, if you go there, it's kind of like that. People are, <laughs> you've been there, right? They are armed to the teeth, man. People walking around everywhere with machine guns and everything else. I mean, it's like the wild, wild west. But I mean, because they're in constant threat to this day. It's just quite amazing. So anyway, so they come. They rebuild this thing. Uh, they finally get it all together. And they have this big, major dedication of the temple. Now, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes allows him to go. And he says, well, how long can I go? And he says, well, you know, he gives him a time. It didn't say. When you do the math here, as we look, it's about 12 years. That's a long time. How long am I going to be on? 12, you know, for me, you want some time off? I'm figuring a few weeks. <laughs> Not, how about 12 years? So uh, anyway, so <laughs> he gets 12 years. He comes back. Uh, but then he's got to go back to the king. And uh, so anyway, we see here, this is, this is some great analogies just in this final chapter, if I ever get to it. All right, so here we go. Uh, they're having this big dedication now. It's been a big deal, and they're very diligent on who did what and when this what gate was built and all this stuff that we just skip over because, quite frankly, I don't care. Anyway, so chapter 13, verse 1. Now, on that day, they're having this big dedication. The book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. That's not the denomination. That's just the church, all right? Why couldn't they be? Why couldn't you let an Ammonite, an Ammonite, an Ammonite and a Moabite or any of those ites into the church? Why couldn't they come in to the temple and worship God? Because they had not met the Israelites with food and water back, this is hundreds of years ago. These people never forgot it, transgression, I'm telling you. And, and to, actually, it's quite interesting. To, the, to this day in the Middle East, people relive transgressions like they happened yesterday that took place hundreds of years ago. We look at, for example, the Crusades and stuff and all that stuff as just ancient history. We don't even know what happened. Imagine most people in here don't even know what most of that was even about or when. To this day, they still rehearse the specific battles and attacks and of atrocities that they believe the Christians uh, brought on them. I mean, they are into, that's why they still hate us to a passion a lot of these Arab countries. They're still ticked off about it. Well, this is all part of this culture, so they're still mad because when the Israelites had come in, uh, the Ammonites and the Moabites weren't nice to them, and they, in fact, had hired Balaam, who was a prophet, to curl a, call a curse down on them. So they hired this prophet to curse the people so that they could, you know, fail, and uh, this is the story where Balaam's donkey God used the donkey to talk to the prophet to get him to stop. Because no matter how much he tried to curse them, he kept blessing them. He couldn't stop. It was interesting. So that's the story of the, the donkey donkey, which when I grew up was Balaam's ass. And you can only imagine how much fun we had with Balaam's talking ass. And anyway, so uh, <laughs> teenage giggles for hours on that one, I'm telling you. So uh, when the people heard this law, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, remember, they had fallen away. They hadn't listened. Now, first of all, remember, several years earlier, by the tune of how many, 10 decades here, Ezra had read where you're not supposed to intermarry and then rebuked these guys for marrying foreign wives and decided 
that they should divorce these women and children and just get rid of them, which I have argued I think was a terrible thing to do. I have some evidence because Malachi, who was prophesying at that time, condemned the practice of divorcing your wife. Uh, but uh, So anyway, they'd hear these things and they kind of would overreact. And uh, it, this is the beginning of what happens by the time Jesus shows up. They were, in Jesus' time, the religious people were such pinheads. They would, they would just overreact to everything. And they would take God's law and then become legalistic and crazy about it. Uh, my best analogy for legalism, if you've been around me very long, you've heard me say this, and you'll probably hear it another hundred times before I kick the bucket. But the best analogy is, uh, let's say there's a rule. Your kids can't play in the street. It's a good rule. It's for your kid's safety. Well, then someone comes along and says, well, then they shouldn't play in the yard because if they play in the yard, they'll be tempted to go into the street. So they can only play inside. And someone comes along and says, well, they can play inside, but they have to keep the curtains closed because if they open up and they see the yard, they'll be tempted to go into the yard and possibly end up in the street. And then some other pinhead comes along, you know, children should only be in the basement. Because if they go upstairs, they'll be tempted to look out the curtain, they'll see the lawn, they'll feel tempted to go in the lawn, and then they'll end up in the street. So the first law, which was good, just don't play in the street, becomes oppressive now. And your children are paley, white-skinned creatures who never see the light of day because they can only play in the basement because you don't want them to go into the street. It's legalism. It's stupidity, in my opinion. Uh, Christians have done this uh, historically, uh, would overreact to things uh, and making all kinds of rules. A lot of people, uh, 50 years ago, easily, I would say, when you say the church was like that, a lot of evangelical churches, the, in the attempt to keep people from sin, made all kinds of rules that would keep them from sin. In other words, it was a, the church condemned playing cards. You couldn't play, you know, like go fish or something. That was like porn. I'm not making this. Those, some of you geezers like me, you remember this stuff. Randy, he's really cool. And, uh, you know, they remember this. So you couldn't even play go fish because why? Because if you play go fish, you could wind up in a casino and strung out on drugs. So you couldn't play cards and you couldn't go dancing. Oh, oh my gosh, that was just horrible. And then you couldn't go roller skating. Because roller skating was too much like dancing. And you're rolling like that, and you said, ooh, they're shaking their hips, and they're going to wind up having sex uncontrollably any second. You know? So all this stuff, and they, so they became just pinheads about these things, and very oppressive. So the evangelical church, their attention was well, but it's been a problem that people of God have had for thousands of years. They try to help God. I tell you what, God doesn't need your help. All right? We should be clear to follow God's instruction and don't be adding to things to make things worse. Their intentions are right. Um, about the biggest one, I pick on this one every once in a while, to this day, the majority of evangelical, we are one of the few evangelical Christian churches in America that on a Sunday morning actually serve wine for communion. You generally have to go to a you know, mainline church to do that. Why? Because they're convinced that if you have a little thimble of wine, that you'll go home and open up a bottle of Jack Daniels and beat your wife. Well, it's just absurd. 
You know, so they take, they're still, I'm telling you, it's still a problem today. It's legalism. It's being pinhead about something. They all acknowledge there's no prohibition against, well, some of them make up crazy stuff, but most of them acknowledge there's no prohibition against drinking, and they understand Jesus actually drank wine, and they understand that, but we don't want anybody to stumble. See, they make it sound good. They make it holy, but it's stupid. Stupid. So we give you a ring of, for those of you who are holy, grape juice, so you don't pollute your souls. But the rest of us are polluted like the Lord who actually drank wine. Anyway, don't get me started. I already started. I'm out of control. So anyway, so all that to say this. When the, verse 3, when the people heard this law, what law? That the Ammonites and the Moabites can't come in, they decided to exclude from Israel everybody who is of foreign descent. It didn't say everybody of foreign descent couldn't come. It just said the Moabites and the Ammonites because of what they did. But now they're helping God out. And we'll just keep everybody out. All them foreigners, all those. So this is just the beginning. Ezra was part of it. Now part of it is good. They start having a zeal for God, desperately trying to get it right. But they, this is just the beginning of them turning into the pinheads, religiously speaking, that Jesus ran into a few hundred years later. All right, now before this... Eliashib, Eliashib, whatever his name, the priest, uh, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God, of our God. So that was his job. The priest Eliashib, he's supposed to be in charge of all the storerooms and all you know, the, the temple and stuff. Now he was closely associated with Tobiah. Does that ring a bell? Do you remember Tobiah? Who were the people that were harassing them and threatening the whole time? It was Sanballat, the Arabs, and Tobiah. So he is, now he's going to explain. Listen, I always go on when this was happening. By the, so by the time it takes him to go back, check in with the king, and then get permission to come back again, these guys had totally corrupted themselves in some areas. Not totally, but in some areas they were really going off. Here, they were now in cahoots with Tobiah. Why was he caduced with Tobiah? Because we'll find out in a few verses later here that Eliashib's grandson marries the daughter of Sanballat. And I mean, he gets so mad. Wait, you see what he is? Hilarious. Every preacher alive is going to like this next part. All right, so, so he was closely associated with Tobiah, that little rat, and he provided him with a large room formerly used to store grain offerings and incense and temple articles. And also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil preserved for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. So, where all the money, in, in our terms, because, you know, we have banks. Well, back then, you brought in grain and all these different things to help support these people. And they had these storerooms. Well, Eliashib, or whatever his name is, rents the thing out to Tobiah. Apparently, you know, the you know, local... Renopods were full. So they let this heathen who had been fighting the whole time because he gets in cahoots with their family and now he gets rid of all the grain and all the stuff that's supposed to be supporting the priests and the musicians. And now Tobias, he stores his stuff there. Wow. All right. 
Now, but while all this was going on, he says, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. That's where we do the math. He was in the 20th year that he asked to go. Remember when we read it, I didn't know how long it was. Well, now we find out we read it here. Do the math. That's 12 years. I'll see you in 12 years. So he comes back. He's there. Sometime later, he doesn't say how much time. I don't know how long this went on. Uh, But I returned, uh, I asked for his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here... I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. He goes, and he just throws his stuff out. He's just ticked off. I gave orders to purify the rooms. <laughs> Spray paint the place. I don't know what it is. Just clean it out. Get the, uh, what do you use that stuff to? All right, Lysol. There you go. They Lysol the joint. All right. So, and then I put back in there the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. And that's when I learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So they weren't paying the preachers and the musicians, the people responsible for worship at, in the church or in the temple, all right? Our analogy would be the church. So these guys, they, you can, if you don't pay the preachers and stuff at some point, they can't keep doing what they do. And if you don't pay the musicians, everybody else, you know, and they, they can't do what they do. So they had to go get jobs and go back to their own fields and stuff like that. So he's fine because the main reason was because he dumped out all this stuff so he could put in Tobias junk, his RV and stuff in the temple. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their post. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, okay, all all these names, all right, and they get them all in there because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites, so they brought in the tithes, they were able to start distributing back out, pay these guys so they didn't have to plow their own fields, so they could spend their time and energy ministering to the people, all right? So, and then he prays a prayer. He says, remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Throughout here, Nehemiah, whatever once in a while, say, God, remember I did this. And when somebody does something bad, he says, God, remember they did that bad thing. (laughs) This was the eye for an eye and the tooth for a tooth mentality. Remember when Jesus came and said, love your enemies, it's like, what? He went, thousands of years of cut their heads, poke them in the eye, stick it to them. If they don't love God, just kill them all. And Jesus comes along, love your enemies. I mean, they were stunned. What do you mean, love them? We're supposed to hate them. No, no, no. Love them. Forgive. I mean, when Jesus, we have no idea the radical message when Jesus came that he brought. It's, you know, it's still radical even from our perspective today. But in that context, after thousands of years of this kind of behavior, they were shocked. Jesus did an amazing a clarification to what God really wanted them to be doing. So anyway, uh, verse 15, in those days I saw people in Judah trading wine presses. They're out there squishing grapes and stuff, and they're working on the... Are you supposed to work on the Sabbath if you're Jewish? No. They're working on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. They were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. 
People from Tyre who were living in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your ancestors do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity on us, on this city? You are now stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath? We just went through this horrible beating as a nation. And already, already you're messing this thing up with what he just described here by Elishab getting in cahoots with these. And I'm telling you, to this day, it, this, this was the struggle they had throughout the whole Old Testament. They would let the standards of God slip away and they tried to be goody-goody with everybody else around them. And uh, it would always get them in trouble. Christians for the last 2,000 years have struggled with this, where they would let the pagan practices of the world in which they live start affecting the church. It's one of the big fights. That's why the Lutherans, finally, Martin Luther came along and thought the Catholic Church had so perverted itself because they picked up some of these things that weren't biblical at all and said, this is crazy. And then they had that big split. And then once that started, everybody started splitting. You had 18 gazillion Baptists today. You know, different kinds of Baptists. Everybody's got their own split, 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 split. Finally, that's starting to calm down. Most people don't care about that stuff anymore. Thank God. But, uh, you know, this, all this stuff, but for some reason, there is this desire to make good. And quite frankly, the church is still struggling with this to this day. But, you know, we're so desperately, there's, there's people that just so want everybody to like them. What Jesus said, you have to understand, you follow me, people will hate you. The world will hate you. They hated me, they're going to hate you. Not because you're jerks or mean and stuff, just because of what you stand for. Now, there's people who, as Christians, are jerks and obnoxious, and people can't stand them, but it has nothing to do with their faith. They're just jerks and obnoxious. There's a difference. There's people, the minute you stand for anything righteous, and quite frankly, today, if you stand for any kind of morality, if you are against fornicating, which is supposed to be against, against adultery, which today, with the hot button today's homosexuality, any of these practices that you make a sense of, well, you know, the Bible says you shouldn't do that. And our churches are desperately trying to change all the rules and have been doing this for decades now. You know, and I got to tell you, quite frankly, I'm just really irritated by all this freaking out now of gay marriage. I'm thinking, now, now you're upset. I was reading, you know, Dobson and a bunch of these leaders say, we're going to start having civil disobedience in this country if, if, you know, gays are allowed to be. Really? Why do you care what the heathens do? These very, well, when was the last time you heard a preacher other than me say from the pulpit, you shouldn't be screwing your boyfriend? They don't talk about that. Adultery. Nobody talking about porn. Nobody talking about everybody's, oh, hush, hush, Donald, and it's all okay. And even, you know, some of these so-called leaders say, well, you know, it's okay. God understands if you've got to do these things. Oh, my gosh. We've been ignoring every version of morality in the church for the last 40 years. And now they're taking a stand over gays. And then you wonder why the world thinks we're crazy. They think we're hateful. We're not hateful. All of these things. We should have been speaking against all, not against people, but against the practice. These are different practices. Anyway, so now everyone's desperate to try and change, and we need to review the way we're looking at it. I've had, a, I had one pastor tell in my face a few months ago, well, I just think the, the Bible was wrong. Oh, it came to homosexuality, clearly. You know, they, they were wrong. They didn't understand what we understand today. Oh, my gosh. Talk about becoming buddies with Tobiah and marrying Sanballat's, you know, kids and everything. I mean, they're, they, we've always been in this, not all of us, but there's this 
push, this pressure to make nice with everybody. The crazy thing is every time they do that, those churches tend to die and fail anyway. I don't know what the point is. Uh, anyway, ugh, only I could get on a gay marriage from Nehemiah. All right, let's get back to what we were talking about. So they were doing all these things, working on the Sabbath. Uh, verse 19, when evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. So he just shut the place up. Seal it up. Nobody can get in here. So I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath. So, you know, these uh, people from Tyre and all these, other, all these merchants were just used to coming in. All of a sudden, they come down and the gates are shut down. So he's making a major statement. Nobody gets in here. There's no commerce, no work to be done on the Sabbath. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to go purify themselves and go guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then he says again, remember me, O God, because I did this. So he's really trying to straighten out. These guys had already made, you know, the whole thing with Tobiah, they weren't, uh, and as a result, they couldn't support the uh, preachers and the singers and stuff like that, and then they're working on the Sabbath, all the stuff they're not supposed to do, so he's correcting all this stuff, and then in verse 23, moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. They weren't supposed to. Now, my argument, when I say I think they shouldn't have divorced their children and, and traumatized these women and children... Because clearly that brought huge calamity on them. A lot of these women, their only choice, their only option would be prostitution at that point. It's the only way they could survive. I mean, it was a brutal thing that they did. And, uh, and I pointed out that there were many women of faith throughout the Bible who were not Jewish, who came in and stuff like that. But I do acknowledge they weren't supposed to be doing this. Well, they were still doing it. Clearly, we're going to read in a minute, you know, about uh, Eliashib's grandson, uh, and here's the problem. When you do that, these women would bring in their cultures that they were familiar with. And they'd talk about their gods and their religions and stuff like that. And it would pollute the Jewish faith. And, uh, and he goes on and he says, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of these other peoples and didn't even know how to speak the language of Judah. So you could see, I mean, it, was, it would be a big cultural problem. They couldn't even speak. It would be like, you know, if... Uh, I don't want to be an analogy, you know, for us speaking English. And then these kids, you know, they can't even speak English anymore because, you know, whatever, uh, it would become a problem. They all speak German, they all speak something like that. And then you start losing the cultural identity. Uh, and certainly from a religious standpoint, they were definitely instructed not to let this happen. So I rebuked them and I called curses down on them and I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. This is the verse that most pastors will appreciate. You ever feel like that, Joe? Pastor Lathan. We just want to smack people. He was so mad. I think King James said he pulled out their beard. And that was like, ow. So he just starts pounding on people. He is so mad. He is beside himself. He's come down. He's rebuking him for this. You shouldn't do this. Slam the gates. Put up. Got to rescue people. Here's how I do it. And then he finds these guys who are intermarrying their kids. And he just beats the snot out of them. He is mad. 
And I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Indeed, he did. Now, he wasn't supposed to do, but that's the first thing Solomon starts doing is marrying all these chicks. That boy's out of control. He had 300 wives and 700 other women, concubines, which did the same things as wives, just didn't have the same legal status. He had a thousand women. A thousand. If you had one at lunch, one at breakfast, one at dinner, you couldn't get them all through them in a year. No wonder he was so depressed at the end of his life. And he actually talks about that. So I never said no to anything I wanted. And when you read uh, Ecclesiastes, did we skip, I think we skipped Ecclesiastes, we can't remember. He was depressed out of his ever-loving mind. He was so depressed. Anyway, you know what Solomon did? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we, now, uh, must we hear now that you are too are doing all this? I can't read. Must we now hear that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? So it beats us not out of them. And one of the sons of Joida, which was the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. If you do the math back, it means Eliashib's grandson marries Sanballat's daughter. And I drove him away from me. Get away from me! And then he says, remember them, my God, because they've defiled the priestly office and covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So he's calling curses down on them, beating the snot out of them. So I purify the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assign them duties, each to his own task. I also made provisions for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. He was taken. He was the ultimate administrator. He made sure everything was running properly. That was his job. He wasn't a priest, but he was an administrator, and he was an extremely gifted administrator, and as you can read, very intense administrator, and he made sure everything was working properly, and he ends with saying, remember me with favor, my God. And, uh, and that's pretty much the last we hear uh, we don't know exactly when Malachi was written. It was written around some of this time, but it, that's the closest that we have in order that Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, literally, as you read. But then from here now, they start getting back to the basics and they start refocusing. They're getting back to their faith, which was good. They finally, finally, these guys couldn't go very long at all before they were into idolatry and all the horrible things that God warned them against. Well, after coming out of captivity and all this stuff, they never did it again. They learned their lesson. Apparently, it was a major traumatizing event, and it didn't happen anymore. You never read anymore since that time or the last 2,000 years where you see Israelites are out there you know, getting into Buddhism or something and worshiping false gods. They just, it never happened again. They seriously learned their lesson, and they rebuilt the nation and they became very devout. Sadly, they overdid it and became uh, these Pharisees and Sadducees and these uh, legalistic pinheads. Um, you can see up to this point, I mean, everybody was working on the Sabbath, so they straightened that out. By the time Jesus came, they had figured out you could only take so many steps in a day on the Sabbath. 
And they got mad at Jesus because Jesus would heal people on the Sabbath. You couldn't even do good. You couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. Even if you're going to heal somebody, they came against him for that. And Jesus confronted them and healed people on the Sabbath anyway. And Jesus had to tell them the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It wasn't supposed to be an oppressive thing. They took many of the things of God that were meant to be a blessing and turned them into a curse because they were the equivalent of sticking someone in the basement so that their kids wouldn't wind up playing in the street. And that pretty much wraps up uh, the Old Testament. Again, there's wonderful, great things uh, you can learn from the Old Testament. And it puts the whole experience, Christian experience into context. Without the Old Testament, a lot of the Christian experience wouldn't make any sense. But it starts to make sense when you understand and how through these thousands of years we read of the prophecies of the Messiah that would come. Remember Zechariah, who prophesied at this time, said he will come riding on a donkey, which was fulfilled when he had that great, uh, on Palm Sunday, you know, when he rode a donkey into the city. All these amazing testimonies or prophecies they had were all laid out for years and years ahead of time. Um, the last thing we can take a look real quick, if you're looking in a timeline, is the book of Psalms is, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting, we were talking this morning, uh, <laughs> I mean, I know there were Psalms that weren't written by David, but I assumed he'd written almost all of them, but it's not, he wrote like half of them. So the other half of Psalms are all written by other people, they don't even know who some of them were, and it's spread out all over time. There was three Psalms that, uh, as you study this, that they say were written at this time. One of them was Psalm number one. Uh, the other one was Psalm 91, Psalm number one. Uh, not to me, but real familiar with that. But Psalm 91 is a very famous Psalm, so I thought maybe we'd read that real quick, because that's in the context of uh, this time period. How they know this, I don't know. I could spend hours and hours to try and figure it out, but I don't care. All right, Psalm 91 is a very famous a chapter, Psalm. It says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling place, dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. Uh, it's not to say that we don't have struggles in the life we do. But there's a difference between having struggles and challenges and faith and experiencing utter disaster. Our, our promise is if we'll honor God, he will keep us from utter disaster, uh, which is a good thing. Um, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that they will not strike your foot against the stone. Anybody remember who quoted this in the New Testament? Satan. Uh, when Satan came and tempted Jesus, one of his temptations, he took him up on one of these high pinnacles and uh, said, throw yourself down. If you're the Christ, throw yourself down. Because it is written that uh, he will command his angels concerning you and guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands lest you strike your foot against the stone. So even Satan knew Psalm 91. <laughs> and quoted it at Jesus, trying to get him to tempt God. And Jesus looked at him and said, 
you shall not tempt the Lord thy God. All right, there's only one area where you're supposed to be testing God. Everybody remember what that is? Tithing. <laughs> Just test me in this part. See if I don't bless you, because if you do this, I will bless you. But in everything else, you're not supposed to just be looking for trouble. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Apparently, there's some literary marks in those two psalms that uh, imply that it was written at that at this final element there's one other place a third psalm and it's psalm 119 anybody remember what's unique about that one longest chapter in the bible yeah it's a very long psalm and basically it goes through the alphabet and uh and so now uh what's interesting about psalm 119 is the emphasis on getting back to obeying the word of God, honoring the word of God. Uh, let's take a look at it a little bit. Psalm 119, verse 1. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with their whole heart. They do no wrong but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. I mean, this is... They're trying to get back to. They've fallen so far away from obeying God's laws. And at this time, this is where they're at. He said, then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. One of my favorite parts of the, of the Psalms is the next, under the next letter here. It says, how can a young man stay on the path of purity? How can we pull? How can you? How can you live this Christian life and not mess up? He's, and he gives the answer by living according to your word. There's something powerful about getting God's word in you. When you start thinking God's word, when you have this before you, the teachings. Obviously, we don't teach, get into the law of Moses. Ugh, thank God. But there is the law of grace that we're supposed to be aware of, and the teachings of Jesus and His commandments and His instructions. We live that and keep that before you. If you're aware of this, it'll keep you out of trouble, and it'll keep you on the right path. He says, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. And I love this one. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Something we teach the children when they do memory verses. One of the powerful things about taking Bible verses and memorizing them is you're putting them in here. You're burying it in here. And I promise you, if you do, you'll be surprised. That, and it's certainly been the case in my life, times of great trial, struggle, or temptation in my life when I felt totally overwhelmed and all of a sudden a Bible verse that I had stuck into my heart and memorized, boom, would come back to me. Now, one experience I had, I won't get into it and stuff like that, but it was like, I'm telling you, it was the closest thing to a vision I've ever had. I felt a divine presence about that far away from me. You know, from here to that, that thing there. And, and I was totally freaked out. And just, I could hear this, these words, although it wasn't you were hearing it, but yet you're hearing it. It's a bizarre thing. Quoting back verses that I had memorized about dealing with this very same thing. And it was like, it just pulled me totally out of just doing very destructive things uh, and setting me straight. You can't get that kind of stuff if you don't take it and put it inside you. You need to get it inside you. 
And a kudos to all of you who come on Wednesday night. Truthfully, this place should be as packed on Wednesday night as it is on Sunday morning. Same in Stevens Point everywhere else. Sadly, there is a remnant, a smaller group that actually comes seeking out more teaching of the scriptures. But it's a powerful thing. The more you get it in your heart, the more it can help you do life right. And with that, we will end our teaching of the Old Testament. In the fall, when we come back, we'll jump into the New Testament. We'll jump in with Acts and try and do it chronologically as we go through all the epistles at the same time. The good news is that's only 70 years. (laughs) We don't have to unscramble thousands of years of history. It's not quite as complicated. Anyway, God bless you guys. See you Sunday.